Chapter Twenty One of the Blythdale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythdale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Twenty One An Old Acquaintance. Thus excluded from everybody's confidence, and attaining no further by my most earnest study than to an uncertain sense of something hidden from me, it would appear reasonable that I should have flung off all these alien perplexities. Obviously my best course was to betake myself to new scenes. Here I was only an intruder. Elsewhere there might be circumstances in which I could establish a personal interest, and people who would respond, with a portion of their sympathies, for so much as I should bestow of mine. Nevertheless there occurred to me one other thing to be done. Remembering old Moody and his relationship with Priscilla, I determined to seek an interview for the purpose of ascertaining whether the knot of affairs was as inextricable on that side as I found it on all others. Being tolerably well acquainted with the old man's haunts, I went the next day to the saloon of a certain establishment about which he often lurked. It was a reputable place enough, affording good entertainment in the way of meat, drink, and fumigation, and there, in my young and idle days and nights, when I was neither nice nor wise, I had often amused myself with watching the staid humors and sober jollities of the thirsty souls around me. At my first entrance old Moody was not there. The more patiently to await him, I lighted a cigar, and, establishing myself in a corner, took a quiet, and by sympathy a boozy kind of pleasure, in the customary life that was going forward. The saloon was fitted up with a good deal of taste. There were pictures on the walls, and among them an oil-painting of a beefsteak, with such an admirable show of juicy tenderness, that the beholder sighed to think it merely visionary, and incapable of ever being put upon a gridiron. Another work of high art was the lifelike representation of a noble sirloin. Another the hindquarters of a deer, retaining the hoofs and tawny fur another the head and shoulders of a salmon, and still more exquisitely finished, a brace of canvas-back ducks, in which the mottled feathers were depicted with the accuracy of a daguerreotype. Some very hungry painter, I suppose, had wrought these subjects of still life, heightening his imagination with his appetite, and earning, it is to be hoped, the privilege of a daily dinner off whichever of his pictorial viands he liked best. Then there was a fine old cheese, in which you could almost discern the mites, and some sardines on a small plate, very richly done, and looking as if oozy with the oil in which they had been smothered. All these things were so perfectly imitated that you seemed to have the genuine article before you, and yet with an indescribable ideal charm. It took away the grossness from what was fleshiest and fattest, and thus helped the life of man, even in its earthliest relations, to appear rich and noble, as well as warm, cheerful, and substantial. There were pictures, too, of gallant revellers, those of the old time, Flemish apparently, with doublets and slashed sleeves, drinking their wine out of fantastic long-stemmed glasses, quaffing joyously, quaffing forever, with inaudible laughter and song 
while the champagne bubbled immortally against their moustaches, or the purple tide of burgundy ran inexhaustibly down their throats. But in an obscure corner of the saloon there was a little picture, excellently done, moreover, of a ragged, bloated New England toper stretched out on a bench in the heavy, apoplectic sleep of drunkenness. The death in life was too well portrayed. You smelt the fumy liquor that had brought on this syncope. Your only comfort lay in the forced reflection that, real as he looked, the poor caitiff was but imaginary, a bit of painted canvas whom no delirium tremens, nor so much as a retributive headache awaited on the morrow. By this time, it being past eleven o'clock, the two barkeepers of the saloon were in pretty constant activity. One of these young men had a rare faculty in the concoction of gin cocktails. It was a spectacle to behold how, with a tumbler in each hand, he tossed the contents from one to the other. Never conveying it awry, nor spilling the least drop, he compelled the frothy liquor, as it seemed to me, to spout forth from one glass and descend into the other in a great parabolic curve, as well-defined and calculable as a planet's orbit. He had a good forehead, with a particularly large development just above the eyebrows, fine intellectual gifts, no doubt, which he had educated to this profitable end, being famous for nothing but gin cocktails, and commanding a fair salary by his one accomplishment. These cocktails and other artificial combinations of liquor, of which there were at least a score, though mostly, I suspect, fantastic in their differences, were much in favor with the younger class of customers, who at farthest had only reached the second stage of potatory life. The staunch old soakers, on the other hand, men who, if put on tap, would have yielded a red alcoholic liquor by way of blood, usually confined themselves to plain brandy and water, gin, or West India rum, and oftentimes they prefaced their dram with some medicinal remark as to the wholesomeness and stomachic qualities of that particular drink. Two or three appeared to have bottles of their own behind the counter, and, winking one red eye to the barkeeper, he forthwith produced these choicest and peculiar cordials, which it was a matter of great interest and favor among their acquaintances to obtain a sip of. Agreeably to the Yankee habit under whatever circumstances, the deportment of all these good fellows, old or young, was decorous and thoroughly correct. They grew only the more sober in their cups. There was no confused babble nor boisterous laughter. They sucked in the joyous fire of the decanters and kept it smouldering in their inmost recesses with a bliss known only to the heart which it warmed and comforted. Their eyes twinkled a little, to be sure. They hemmed vigorously after each glass and laid a hand upon the pit of the stomach, as if the pleasant titillation there was what constituted the tangible part of their enjoyment. In that spot unquestionably, and not in the brain, was the acme of the whole affair. But the true purpose of their drinking, and one that will induce men to drink or do something equivalent as long as this weary world shall endure, was the renewed youth and vigor, 
the brisk, cheerful sense of things present and to come, with which for about a quarter of an hour the dram permeated their systems. And when such quarters of an hour can be obtained in some mode less baneful to the great sum of a man's life, but nevertheless with a little spice of impropriety to give it a wild flavor, we temperance people may ring out our bells for victory." The prettiest object in the saloon was a tiny fountain, which threw up its feathery jet through the counter, and sparkled down again into an oval basin, or lakelet, containing several goldfishes. There was a bed of bright sand at the bottom, strewn with coral and rock-work, and the fishes went gleaming about, now turning up the sheen of a golden side, and now vanishing into the shadows of the water, like the fanciful thoughts that coquette with a poet in his dream. Never before, I imagine, did a company of water-drinkers remain so entirely uncontaminated by the bad example around them nor could I help wondering that it had not occurred to any freakish inebriate to empty a glass of liquor into their lakelet. What a delightful idea! Who would not be a fish if he could inhale jollity with the essential element of his existence? I had begun to despair of meeting old Moody, when all at once I recognized his hand and arm protruding from behind a screen that was set up for the accommodation of bashful topers. As a matter of course, he had one of Priscilla's little purses, and was quietly insinuating it under the notice of a person who stood near. This was always old Moody's way. You hardly ever saw him advancing towards you, but became aware of his proximity, without being able to guess how he had come thither. He glided about like a spirit, assuming visibility close to your elbow, offering his petty trifles of merchandise, remaining long enough for you to purchase if so disposed, and then taking himself off between two breaths while you happened to be thinking of something else. By a sort of sympathetic impulse that often controlled me in those more irrepressible days of my life, I was induced to approach this old man in a mode as undemonstrative as his own. Thus, when, according to his custom, he was probably just about to vanish, he found me at his elbow. "'Ah,' said he, with more emphasis than was usual with him, "'it is Mr. Coverdale.' "'Yes, Mr. Moody, your old acquaintance,' answered I. "'It is some time now since we ate luncheon together at Blythedale, and a good deal longer since our little talk together at the street-corner.' "'That was a good while ago,' said the old man." and he seemed inclined to say not a word more. His existence looked so colourless and torpid, so very faintly shadowed on the canvas of reality, that I was half afraid lest he should altogether disappear, even while my eyes were fixed full upon his figure. He was certainly the wretchedest old ghost in the world, with his crazy hat, the dingy handkerchief about his throat, his suit of threadbare grey, and especially that patch over his right eye, behind which he always seemed to be hiding himself. There was one method, however, of bringing him out into somewhat stronger relief. A glass of brandy would affect it. Perhaps the gentler influence of a bottle of claret might do the same. Nor could I think it a matter for the recording angel to write down against me, 
if with my painful consciousness of the frost in this old man's blood and the positive ice that had congealed about his heart i should thaw him out were it only for an hour with the summer warmth of a little wine what else could possibly be done for him how else could he be imbued with energy enough to hope for a happier state hereafter how else be inspired to say his prayers for there are states of our spiritual system when the throb of the soul's life is too faint and weak to render us capable of religious aspiration. Mr. Moody, said I, shall we lunch together, and would you like to drink a glass of wine? His one eye gleamed. He bowed, and it impressed me that he grew to be more of a man at once either in anticipation of the wine, or as a grateful response to my good fellowship in offering it. With pleasure, he replied. The barkeeper, at my request, showed us into a private room, and soon afterwards set some fried oysters and a bottle of claret on the table, and I saw the old man glance curiously at the label of the bottle, as if to learn the brand. "'It should be good wine,' I remarked, "'if it have any right to its label.' "'You cannot suppose, sir,' said Moody, with a sigh, "'that a poor old fellow like me knows any difference in wines. "'And yet in his way of handling the glass, "'in his preliminary snuff at the aroma, "'in his first cautious sip of the wine, "'and the gustatory skill with which he gave his palate "'the full advantage of it, "'it was impossible not to recognize the connoisseur.' "'I fancy, Mr. Moody,' said I, "'you are a much better judge of wines than I have yet learned to be. "'Tell me fairly, did you never drink it where the grape grows?' "'How should that have been, Mr. Coverdale?' answered old Moody shyly. "'But then he took courage, as it were, and uttered a feeble little laugh. "'The flavour of this wine,' added he, "'and its perfume still more than its taste, "'makes me remember that I was once a young man.' I wish, Mr. Moody, suggested I, not that I greatly cared about it, however, but was only anxious to draw him into some talk about Priscilla and Zenobia. I wish, while we sit over our wine, you would favor me with a few of those youthful reminiscences. Ah, said he, shaking his head, they might interest you more than you suppose. But I had better be silent, Mr. Coverdale. If this good wine, though claret, I suppose, is not apt to play such a trick, but if it should make my tongue run too freely, I could never look you in the face again. You never did look me in the face, Mr. Moody, I replied, until this very moment. Ah, sighed old Moody. It was wonderful, however, what an effect the mild grape-juice wrought upon him. It was not in the wine, but in the associations which it seemed to bring up. Instead of the mean, slouching, furtive, painfully depressed air of an old city vagabond, more like a grey kennel-rat than any other living thing, he began to take the aspect of a decayed gentleman. Even his garments, especially after I had myself quaffed a glass or two, looked less shabby than when we first sat down. There was, by and by, a certain exuberance and elaborateness of gesture and manner, oddly in contrast with all that I had hitherto seen of him. Anon, with hardly any impulse from me, old Moody began to talk. 
His communications referred exclusively to a long-past and more fortunate period of his life, with only a few unavoidable allusions to the circumstances that had reduced him to his present state. But having once got the clue, my subsequent researches acquainted me with the main facts of the following narrative, although in writing it out my pen has perhaps allowed itself a trifle of romantic and legendary license, worthier of a small poet than of a grave biographer. End of chapter 21